Today, we're going to be talking about a really difficult subject. So we wanted to start with a bit of a disclaimer, a bit of a warning that this content might be triggering for some people. We're going to be talking about suicide, particularly in young people, also in people who are minorities, people with Indigenous backgrounds or who identify with the LGBT community. So this podcast might not be for you. Feel free to tune out if it's something that's just a little too close to home. At the end of the podcast, we're going to have some phone numbers that you can call if you're feeling particularly troubled or feel like you might want to reach out just to talk. Hi, I'm Mujola Malay. And I'm Blair Bigham. This is a CMAJ podcast. So today, Blair, we're talking um, about suicide in young people. Uh, in particularly in uh, trans youth and those uh, who represent sexual minorities. So what were your thoughts? Well, it's a pretty tough topic. Um, as a gay person, it's always hard to read about uh, gay teenagers and people in the LGBT community who are struggling. Sure. Um, but certainly it's not an uncommon experience. And I think it's something that a lot of physicians see in uh, frontline practice, be it in their uh, family clinics or in emergency departments. So it was nice to at least have attention to the matter so that we could talk about this openly. It, I think parents struggle with this a lot. They, for sure, whether their children are LGBT identifying or not, they struggle with the the mental health crisis that youth are experiencing right now. On our second guest, we're going to be talking uh, broadly about suicide in youth and not just trans youth and other groups which are also at risk for suicide and what um, are some of the triggers uh, for that in that population. So let's get into it with our first interview uh, with Mila Kingsbury, the lead author on suicidality amongst sexual minority and transgender adolescents, just published in CMAJ. Mila, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into things. What surprised you about the results of your study? I think for us, uh, the most surprising were these absolutely staggering risk ratios that we saw for trans youth. They were five times more likely to have thought about suicide. They were seven times more likely to have attempted suicide. Certainly, we weren't surprised that transgender and non-binary teens were at risk, but we were very surprised by the magnitude of the risk that we were seeing. To put it another way, more than half of the transgender teens in our sample were experiencing suicidal ideation, um, and almost half, about 40%, had attempted suicide in their lifetime. And to us, that's wow. really a crisis. Tell me how those numbers compare to other LGBT youth and then youth who are not part of the LGBT community. Yeah, so our comparison group for the study were cisgender heterosexual adolescents. And we also saw we saw increased risk among all LGBTQ populations. So an increased risk for boys who are attracted to boys, although this wasn't statistically significant. We think that's because we actually had a very small sample of boys attracted to boys. Bisexual youth, youth attracted to more than one gender, were the second at the second highest risk in this study, at about 2.5 times the risk of suicidal ideation and almost three times the risk of suicide attempt. Notably, we also found that youth who weren't sure about their sexual attraction were also at increased risk of suicide attempt. What do you mean by youth? What age group were you looking at here? So our 
sample was of adolescents age 15 to 17. And that's because in this nationally representative survey, uh, questions on gender identity and suicidality were only asked at this age. Gotcha. And what got you interested in this? What prompted uh, you to use this database to answer these questions? So our group has done a lot of work on suicidality, adolescent suicidality, uh, risk and protective factors for suicidality. So we've been interested in this broad topic for a while. And it seems like issues around LGBTQ young people have been in the zeitgeist a lot. There's a lot of media coverage around conversion therapy bans. On the other hand, debates around access to medical treatment for trans youth uh, in the U.S. particularly. So it seemed like a really topical area to get into. It's actually very rare that a nationally representative survey has data on this topic. So when we saw this survey come out of Statistics Canada, which is known for its high quality data, and they actually asked youth about both their sex assigned at birth and their gender, we saw this as a really amazing opportunity to actually study these issues in a representative sample. Um, Is this the first time this data has been collected at such a sort of national level? There's another nationally representative survey that came out of New Zealand that includes questions on uh, sex at birth and current gender. Uh, But this is certainly the first time in Canada that we've had this data. And tell me a little bit more about what's novel about the research that you've just published. Most of our information about the mental health of trans and gender minority adolescents comes from not nationally representative data, but rather targeted samples specifically of LGBTQ youth or of trans youth. And this can give us a lot of great information about how uh, these populations are doing, but it does not allow us to compare to the general population. And further, it these samples might not be representative of the trans population as a whole. They're going to be reflective of the people who respond to these targeted surveys. So the great thing about this data is that it was um, collected in a way that ensures that it is nationally representative and it's weighted in such a way to reduce the bias associated with sampling. So how do you take these results and fit them into some of the other research looking at sexual minority and transgender adolescents? So our results, while they are shocking, are perhaps not surprising. There is a lot of previous literature that suggests that these populations are at risk of poor mental health and suicidality. So this, I think, adds to that literature in that it provides a nationally representative data source. And it's also up to date. These data were just collected in 2019. In terms of the theoretical literature, we've framed these results in terms of minority stress theory. So this is the idea that members of stigmatized groups tend to experience stress due to social exclusion, discrimination, violence, and all of these things over time can lead to poorer mental health. Um, And so is it that minority stress that sort of explains the the reason trans kids are seven times more likely to attempt suicide than the general population? Or are there other factors in addition to that minority stress and feeling excluded or bullied that go into it? Well, we think minority stress theory explains a good deal because it encompasses a lot of different domains. So family, community, school, the larger cultural outlook. The American Psychiatric Association has affirmed that mental health struggles faced by trans and gender diverse youth is not attributable to anything that is inherent to being transgender. They assert that 
these mental health difficulties are caused by a host of factors which are mostly related to the experiences of these people in the world. So we know that attitudes towards sexual minority, LGBTQ people have come a long way in the past few decades, but there is still a lot of stigmatization, particularly of bisexual identities. And we know that transgender people in particular face significant discrimination. Um, Certainly we can see that by opening up a newspaper. Um, We know that trans people are more likely to be victims of bullying, of violence, of sexual assault, discrimination, Their very legitimacy is constantly being debated in the media. There are actually very few positive representations of trans people in the media Mm. where they're not the butt of the joke or portrayed as monstrous or over-sexualized as in pornography. So, you know, to see media representation about trans people thriving, trans people living stories that are not about their transness is very rare. So I think all of this really adds up to create a harsh, hostile environment that is not good for healthy adolescent development. In our study, we actually assessed the associations between LGBTQ minority status, bullying, and our outcomes. And we found that for trans youth and for bisexual youth, these associations were mediated through the experience of bullying. So that is to say that being bullied explained some of that effect in the data. And Mila, I know this is the first time we've had this national data set that's collected this information, but do you have a sense of any trends over time? Is is society maybe becoming more accepting or tolerant and has that caused a change in trends or are things getting worse? Do you have a sense of where we are going with all of this? In our data, we were surprised by the number of youth who said that they were attracted to more than one gender. So national estimates, previous national estimates suggest that around 5% of people in this age group would identify as bisexual. In our study, we found that about 15% of youth were saying that they were attracted to more than one gender. Why do you think that is? This could be a feature of how the question was asked. So instead of asking teens how they identified lesbian, gay, bisexual, etc., they were asked to rate their attraction on sort of a five-point scale. Are you only attracted to males, mostly attracted to males, equally attracted to males and females, etc.? So I think for young people who are beginning to explore their sexual orientation, it may be less daunting to say, I have some degree of same gender attraction rather than to put themselves into a strict category like bisexual. It could also be, though, and my hope is that young people in this generation are feeling more comfortable exploring their sexual orientation and gender identity than they have been in previous generations. Now that we have this sort of baseline data nationally, that sounds quite rich and trustworthy. What's the next step here? What do you guys plan on looking at? What areas are you hoping to explore? We would love to be able to apply an intersectional lens to this research. We know that it's very rare for somebody to be marginalized in only one dimension. So you're not just moving through the world as a trans person, you might be moving through the world as a black trans person, as an indigenous trans person. And and those experiences aren't just additive. It's not just you're 
trans and you're a woman and you're black, it's these things really interact and are more than the sum of their parts. So we would have liked to be able to look at that in this study. Unfortunately, the downside of a nationally representative study is that you end up with very small sample sizes for marginalized groups of interest. And when you start to carve up these groups further in terms of race, in terms of other dimensions of marginalization, there just isn't the sample size there. So that's where I think these targeted surveys can come in handy to really be able to get a large enough sample size to be able to look at uh, interactions between different dimensions of marginalization. And then from your data, from the work you've done, can you think of anything that sort of reduces the risk of suicidal ideation or suicidal attempt? Is there something that family doctors can be on the lookout for as a a bit of a shining light in all of this? Definitely. I think there are a lot of things that can be done. Um, So first of all, mental health supports for LGBTQ identified youth are a great start definitely should be in place. And ideally, we would want LGBTQ people behind the scenes as well, helping to develop these supports uh, to make sure that they are appropriate and are going to be well received. But if we're talking about preventing these mental health issues from taking root in the first place, I think we need to look uh, to changing things more broadly in society. So creating a more tolerant society, working to reduce stigma against these groups would be great. Now, narrowing down to what the individual physician can do, we know that access to gender affirming care is really important. Gender affirming care has been shown empirically to result in decreased depression, decreased anxiety and lower suicidality among trans and non-binary youth. And what does that gender-affirming care look like? So the definition of gender-affirming care is that it is a medical or a paramedical care designed to support and affirm a person's gender. So this can include things like hormone therapy or drugs to delay or prevent puberty, but that's not, it's not limited to those things. Basically, gender-affirming care creates a safe environment for trans people and those questioning their gender to explore their identity. And if it's appropriate, then they can get treatment to help them match their outward presentation to their gender. So this, a first step would be perhaps counseling by a supportive, non-judgmental provider. And this allows youth to explore their feelings around gender. And after that, we might consider counseling on how to come out to loved ones, for example. That can be a very stressful experience and can add to the negative effects. Gender-affirming care can also include connecting youth to resources that can help them with their gender presentation. So things like vocal coaching to modulate the pitch of their voice, electrolysis, hair and makeup lessons. Primary care providers can't do all of this, of course, but I think that being well-versed in these issues can create a, a safer, more welcoming space for trans patients and can serve then as a jumping off point for access to this type of service. Uh, So being knowledgeable in these areas, knowing what sorts of services might be helpful to these youth, perhaps having a roster of providers and organizations to refer to is a great start. Um, Even things like when a patient walks into the clinic, are they greeted with the correct pronouns and name? It it sounds very easy, but in practice, that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Mila. Thank you so much, Mila. Thanks for having me. Mila Kingsbury is a Senior Research Associate of the Department of Epidemiology and Community Medicine at the University of Ottawa.
We're going to pull back the lens now and look at trying to put this study into the broader context of teen suicide in Canada. Dr. Tyler Black is the medical director of one of the few North American dedicated pediatric psychiatric emergency inpatient units at BC Children's Hospital. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So just wanted to start off with, what's your impression of Mila's finding about trans youth? I mean, it's good to finally see numbers to something that we've not only suspected clinically, but we've had lots of other data suggest. So to have such a large study showing the impact of marginalization of non-binary youth with respect to suicidal thinking is what everybody's been talking about. There's been lots of talk about trans suicidality, but very few numbers. So we're still in an area where we need the data to be able to start really understanding who's impacted and how. Did the number surprise you, like how high it was than the general population? Not particularly. So we see elevations, even just going from uh, boys to girls for those who identify. And then we know for sure that kids who don't identify in a binary format, their risks are much higher in other surveys that we've looked at. Unfortunately, sexuality is more often surveyed than binary or non-binary gender. So we have a lot more data on on non-normative sexual uh, orientations, but we don't have as much data on trans youth. How does that compare to other at-risk groups in Canada? It's it's among the highest. We can find other groups in Canada that, that have similar uh, or higher rates. Uh, so Inuit in Canada have a, in the same age range, have anywhere between a 13 and 33 times risk of suicide. So just a huge elevation yeah. for that marginalized group. And commonly, this gets translated into risk of being trans means you're higher risk for suicide. But of course, we don't think it's anything about being trans that puts you at risk. We think it's the marginalization and the systemic exclusions. And that would be the same for marginalized racial groups as well. What does marginalization look like in adolescence? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really hard to be an adolescent. There's so many things going on that put pressure on kids. There's social norms and how you look and what you dress and whether or not you're saying or doing the right things. And of course, as our sexuality and our our expression of who we are comes to the forefront, that's one of the roles of adolescence. When mm. way back when in medical school, we all learned the stages of development. But one of the primary tasks of adolescence is who am I and how do I fit in this world? And it becomes such a central issue because there's a lot of kids who the world isn't well set up for. It's um, maybe a little bit easier in some centers, like I imagine major urban centers, maybe it's a little bit easier to be trans, but it's certainly across Canada, it can be a really harrowing thing to know that there's no one else in your school who has that same experience or has that same identity. And there's an open, um, almost a war uh, sometimes being expressed against people who look or sound or feel like they do. So so it's a really trying time, even when you completely check all of the normative boxes. A hetero boy in Canada can really struggle with private thoughts about who they are and what's going on and all the pressures on them. You add all the uniqueness about being non-binary, and you can find a lot more opportunities to feel marginalized. What are the trends currently in the general population when we look at suicide? Is it increasing? 
In Canada right now, the the rates are relatively stable. There was a decrease for most age groups in the first year of the pandemic in 2020 in terms of suicide. But when we look at suicide thinking, which occupies a much larger percentage of youth, so very small percentage of youth die by suicide every year, mm. maybe about four four to five per hundred thousand, but okay. almost almost sixteen percent of of teenaged kids will think about suicide seriously in any given year. And so there's a, a large fraction of kids who think about suicide. And that number in Canada has been pretty static uh, for the past 10 years. Tyler, are there certain things that stimulate a, a teenager to have those thoughts? Are there certain triggers that are maybe more at risk than others for those thoughts to become behaviors? S- certainly, when kids perceive that there aren't easy solutions. Their brains can navigate to a whole bunch of different things. So some people will turn to self-destructive behaviors that sort of Mm -hmm. numb you out. And we see drug use behaviors that can be really a way to feel better when we don't feel good as ourselves. But certainly we know that if you already have a pre-existing problem, and this can be any medical problem from a depression all the way through to diabetes, if you're male, it's more likely that it'll translate into suicide action in terms of suicide thinking, uh, a little bit more likely for females. And then in the and we now have this data on nine on non-binary youth, which tell us that it's even higher. Um, there are so many risk factors and protective factors that go into whether or not someone will think about suicide or seriously plan it. That it's almost impossible to keep a list of what could be there, and it just gets down to knowing the patient in front of you. What do we know about what is driving the higher suicide rates among Inuit, <laughs> Indigenous, or trans teens? What is like the trigger? that yeah. you found? Well, it's over-representation. And, and like any time, representation is is discordant with what the population looks like. It usually has to do with systemic factors. And there was a study in Statistics Canada looking at Inuit and Métis and Aboriginal suicides in Canada and finding that when you, even when you did very simple statistical controls, like um, being a part of the labor force or whether or not you had a certain amount of income, the elevated risk and overrepresentation in the Aboriginal population went back down very close to one. Mm. And that's with some really basic ep- economic parameters. Of course, there's a lot of things that StatsCan doesn't measure that would also be factors that influence whether or not someone has a, a risk for suicide. And so we do think that a lot of it comes from the societal pressures and the systemic barriers that that people who are marginalized experience. So social determinants of health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we hear a lot about mental health and mm. mental health diagnosis among teens. Mm. There's been a lot of articles talking about anxiety and depression being high, especially after COVID. Does this tend to be a trigger for suicide in these groups or is there other things that trigger the suicide yeah, it's, it's one of the, the tricky things about suicide advocacy and suicide messaging is there's a lot of messages out there that actually aren't really well supported. And one of the myths out there is that 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental illness. This has been a well-held mm. statistic that even a lot of advocacy groups use. And I can see maybe why they use that for mental health advocacy, but it's not true. We do autopsies and pretty much coroners will in- interview and investigate any death that's not determined to be natural. And usually we find mental health problems in about 50 to 60% of people who die by suicide. Now, of those, there are other factors that can lead to suicide. And I think the mental health conversation is very important. But I always think that we draw a line. And we say, it's suicide is only something that we should worry about in people with mental health problems. And that's just not true. 
So when we look at suicide, we want to make sure that we remember that there's other things that can lead to suicidal thinking. So having a relationship problem, having a school problem, having a, an interpersonal problem or a family problem, these are all things that can lead to suicidal thinking and suicide outcomes. And so it's not just mental health problems. So I'm fine with mental health advocacy and we need much more support. But I always think that we do a little bit of othering when all we say is in the suicide conversation is we need to support mental health more because really any area that supports people would support their suicide risk. That to me just completely blows my mind and really changes how I view it, right? Because mm -hmm. I always thought, oh, if someone um, dies by suicide or any suicidal ideations, that there's a mental health that, that yeah. diagnosis that goes with it. But that it could completely be divorced from that yeah. thinking. Yeah, I've talked to kids in the ICU who have woken up from a serious overdose. And the problem was that their boyfriend broke up with them or their girlfriend broke up with them. And you talk to them the next day and they're regretful and they wish they hadn't done it. And they've mm. never had that thought before. They just got overwhelmed. And there's no mental health diagnosis to be found. And of course, I'm glad to be talking to them in the ICU, but it doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes the attempt can lead to a death. So it is one of those things where the advocacy is a bit of a double-edged sword because when families experience a suicide, they often are made to feel like they missed a mental health problem. Yeah. And that's where mm -hmm. I that's why I really push this advocacy point a little bit is because there's a number of family members who survive a suicide in the family who really feel a lot of guilt, like somehow they how could they be so have been so blind to the major mental health problem that their their loved one had when in fact there was no mental health problem to be found? How do you think we can go in terms of like generalist emergency mm -hmm. physicians, family physicians, identifying individuals who are at risk of suicide? I think there's some really good tools out there that help you ask. So the, the, the easiest one to remember is the ASK ASQ. It's a really easy screen for suicidality that's been validated for youth. But I always think that the best way to do it is to be genuinely interested and add a few questions in your general health screen that tells the child two things. Number one is you're an open book and you can hear anything they have to say. And two is that you genuinely care. And so I will often encourage physicians when they're meeting someone for the first time or they're working with a kid, ask them about their stress, a simple question like, is there anything going on in your world right now that's stressing you out or anything feeling overwhelming to you? And you can dial the language as appropriate. And then no matter what their response is, has it ever gotten to the point where you've ever felt so overwhelmed that you felt like you couldn't keep going or that you felt really worried about the future? And no matter what they say, the answer to that is you just collect that information, you move on to has there ever been a time that you thought about death or dying or thought that suicide might be something that you wanted to do. And this sounds like, oh my God, why would I open this? My child is coming to me with a sore knee or whatever it is when I'm seeing a young person. But if they're above the age of 10, they're at risk for suicide. And there's a few statistics that I would really like to put out there that would should scare physicians. <laughs> they scare me all the time. Um, only only 20% of the kids who die by suicide are kids who have prior attempts. 80% of people who die of suicide die on their first attempt. So if you're seeing anyone with an attempt history, you've missed four people who have no uh, history. Wow, that scares me <laughs> It too. is. It's scary. And we all know that kids internalize. One in six kids in the high school age 
think seriously about suicide in that year, one in three kids in that age range has enough sadness to meet the sadness criteria for depression. So sad, such that you don't feel like you can do what you like to do for more than two weeks in any given year. That's 33%. And so just opening the door and asking this questions, even if all you get is, nope, everything's fine. Thanks for asking. Mm. That child then knows if I'm ever in trouble, I can talk to my doctor. And we, we really want that pathway going because we know we're missing way too many. Is there anything in particular that primary care physicians should keep in mind when meeting an adolescent that might be non-binary, gender fluid, or trans? Yeah, I think it's so important that you can have your personal opinions about what you believe and what you don't believe. But as physicians, we're required to be non-judgmental and, and have an open spirit towards our patients. And you really want to create inclusive spaces. There is, there's no place in being a doctor that would involve telling someone who is telling you that they're trans that, oh, this is just a phase or, oh, you're just going through something. You might feel like you're helping that person because maybe you do detect that they're, they're struggling with who they are. But when you say it in that way, they will only perceive it as, I do not accept you as who you are. And we want to turn that that message off. I want every patient who ever sees me to know that I like them for who them who they are. And it's almost like the Mr. Rogers principle. I love you just the way you are. And if you're different in the next year than the person that I know now, I love you then too. And if we keep making sure that when kids come to see us, they're they're welcomed, they're open, and there's no judgment. We reduce a lot of the barriers that they'll naturally have. They will naturally assume that you might not want to hear about their trans thinking or their trans identity. They might naturally assume that they they you might not be comfortable with talking about gender fluidity. Um, so if you broadcast your openness and make it such a normal thing to talk about, you really do a lot of help. It's great. That's such a great place yeah. to close. Tyler, that was amazing. Thank great. you. Wow, Jola, those were two pretty deep interviews. How are you feeling? I am tired. I am angry at the vitriol that our trans community gets. Uh, for wanting to live life as the authentic self. We all have ways where we affirm our genders on a daily basis. Having breast augmentation as a cisgendered woman is gender affirming care. So if somebody wants to express themselves and be who they are, and that involves puberty blockers, because we know that um, trans youth going through puberty is a traumatic event for them. Yeah. They should be able to have that experience. And it's been said that, well, you know, hormones at a young age, you know, is it reversible? But you know, what's not reversible is suicide. Yeah. So we need to also put these things into perspective. And before people are able to, you know, make comments and have that negativity that they and, sometimes, to be honest, ignorant comments when it comes to trans health, I think it's incumbent on all of us to just, as Dr. Black said, as Mr. Rogers, treat people with kindness. You are, we all deserve to be loved and to be who we want to be. Totally. It seems like just creating that open space for a conversation might just send that signal that, you know, there are people out there who see you, who hear you, um, even if you feel that other people don't, 
Uh, and maybe that's just our one small contribution uh, in our day-to-day practice that might reduce these suicide rates that are so horrifying. Thanks very much for listening this week. We're looking forward to see you again in two weeks' time. Until then, I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Ojala Mali. Be well. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that we'd provide some resources for anyone struggling after this really difficult subject matter. The Canada Suicide Prevention Service is available 24-7. Their phone number is 1-833-456-4566. In Quebec, you can call one 866 277-3553. If you feel you're in crisis right now, please call an ambulance via 911 or go to your nearest hospital.